on that day, I, I had trouble getting the engine into pump because I didn't understand the operations of that specific engine. Each engine is different. Just because you can pump an E1 doesn't mean you can pump a Pierce or a Septon or whatever it may be. Enchanted Sky Media. Media. This is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast. Now, here's your host, Scott Orr. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me again here on Code 3. This is the show for and about firefighters. We're informing and entertaining members of the fire service, just like you, from coast to coast. Today, we're going to discuss a major line-of-duty death incident, the loss of the Charleston Nine. It happened on the evening of June 18, 2007, at the Sofa Superstore in Charleston, South Carolina. The initial fire was located on a loading dock, but it extended into the showroom. There was a 911 call from a trapped employee who was found and rescued. Then, about 40 minutes into the call, there was a flashover and the roof collapsed. Firefighters caught in the flashover were unable to escape and were trapped under the collapsing roof. It was a horrific situation and it was the first time Charleston firefighters had been killed in the line of duty since 1965. My guest today was there. Dr. David Griffin is a battalion chief today, but he was the engineer on the first new pumper on June 18, 2007. David holds a doctorate of education in organizational leadership and development, He's the author of several books, and we'll have more on that later. He's an international speaker and instructor, and he's the owner of On a Mission, LLC. And Dr. David Griffin joins me now. Welcome to Code 3. Good morning. Glad to be on the show. Thanks for joining me. This started as a small fire, but like so many others, it quickly turned into a massive blaze. Tell me what it was like, what you saw when you arrived on your engine. Well, it was. It started out as a trash fire in the loading dock area. Uh, as we made our way to the scene, we could we could tell it was a little bit larger than a trash fire, obviously because of what it was burning. It was solidified gasoline from the foam from the furniture. As we arrived on scene, we actually took a little detour around the building because we thought we needed to go to the rear and we couldn't gain access. So as we came back around the front, we saw a significant amount of fuel being uh, coming from the building. Uh, so we went into our operations, and as we went into our operations, the fire was growing so very quickly. Uh, we had water supply issues. Unfortunately, back then, our water supply was uh, two and a half inch supply lines. We didn't have any LDH. So that was kind of, we were behind the eight ball right off the bat with not having the volume of water that we needed for a building of that size. Broken into three different showrooms, plus a large warehouse in the back. So you had the main showroom, which was about 125 by 130. You had two showrooms off of the main showroom, the west and the east showroom. Those were 60 by 120. And then you had a large warehouse in the back, which was about 120 by 130 feet. But it was 29 foot tall with racks that were about 20 feet tall with furniture. So you can imagine the fuel load in the structure. 
So as the fire progressed through the loading dock into a breezeway and then into the back area of the west showroom through the main showroom, it started to progress so very quickly because we didn't have the gallons per minute uh, that we needed. How far into your career were you when this happened? I had been on the job for two years and two months, and I had been a driver operator for two months. So this obviously was a major impact in your life, given that it was probably the first fire of its size that you had seen? Definitely. As a firefighter, I'd been to numerous fires because we had an arsonist in our area when I came on the job, but that was as a firefighter. As a driver, for the two months I had been a driver, I had never pumped a fire. I had never driven to a fire. So I obviously, when I saw that, uh, my nerves kicked in and I realized that I had not prepared myself correctly for an event like that. Now, there were some critical errors made, and we're not looking for fault here, but we want to learn how to prevent this kind of situation in the future. What are the major mistakes that were identified in this situation? A lot of them had to do with uh, just our practices and our operations and our our equipment as well. On on my personal side, uh, the things that I learned from mistakes was understanding the pump operations of of an engine. On that day, I I had trouble getting the engine into pump because I didn't understand the operations of that specific engine. My position was called assistant engineer, so I would be detailed to different companies. And I tell this story because, unfortunately, in our profession, there are people that get detailed from engine to engine, and they don't think it's important to learn that specific engine. Each engine is different. Just because you can pump an E1 doesn't mean you can pump a Pierce or a Sepson or whatever it may be. Even if they have the same type of pump, a hail or a waterist, whatever it may be, they're still different operations. And for me on that day, there was a little uh, delay in that pump switch, which was normal to that engine and normal to all the guys that knew it. But me being a new driver, I should have asked questions. And I didn't do that because I already thought I knew how to pump an engine. Right, and that was a major lesson for you personally, something that you might have known, but you had to learn the hard way. So first lesson learned for me personally was make sure when you're detailed or you're learning a new engine, you understand the operations of it. Because when you go to a significant event, that is not the time to learn how to put that engine in pump or learn how to pump it correctly. On the other side of it, uh, operations-wise, we all learned a lot from that. We learned that our apparatus, we needed the LDH on the back of our apparatus. We had not used LDH before. We had used two-and-a-half-inch hose lines because it had always worked for us, which relates to the normalization of deviance. We had used that for so long, and we were successful, so we believed that it was okay. Good people, good intentions, the knowledge just wasn't there. So once we learned uh, after the event from the LDH, we obviously we utilize that a lot today. The other side was we changed our incident command as well. We all utilize, obviously, NIMS ICS, and we've many of us have taken Blue Card. We have a command training center in Charleston now to where we utilize that to train our captains, our acting captains, as well as our battalion chiefs and above. I'll be back with more right after this. On any given day, you are tasked to be your best and power through the worst of times, all at a moment's notice. We know the sacrifices you make each and every day. Your success relies on superior equipment and the best training available. That's why Federal Resources is here to support you, the everyday hero. We are here so you can excel. Discover your success at federalresources.com. 
we would hope that if these changes are made, this sort of thing would not happen again. But given the circumstances and the situation, do you believe that the deaths were preventable? I'm going to quote the Rowley Report. The first finding of the Rowley Report was the situation that occurred in Charleston on June 18, 2007 was predictable and was preventable. We've been talking about that for a long time. Hundreds of years, people have been predicting and trying to prevent different types of incidents. We do work in a dangerous profession. You're not going to reduce all line of duties. I understand that because there are some, there are times to when things are going to happen because of what we do. But there are specific things we can do to try to reduce them. And if you look at our line of duty death numbers currently, we are, we're, we're losing firefighters, but we're not losing them all just in structure fires. We're still losing a lot of firefighters to cardiac, and that's something that we can prevent. That's preventable, and it's predictable and preventable as well. We're losing a lot of guys when they're driving the rigs and not wearing seatbelts. We're still losing guys on different events other than structure fires. So we're losing firefighters more than just on duty as in a structure fire. And what we're seeing now in the research is that, unfortunately, the number one killer of our own selves, our firefighters, is is suicide. And that's something that I'm hoping that we're all going to start to to take better care of our guys with. This story is both about the nine brothers who died fighting a fire, but it's also about the survivors like you. How did their deaths affect you? It made me think about things a lot differently. I, I say it changed my DNA, and obviously it did not change my DNA, but I say that figuratively because I look at things a little bit differently, whereas someone won't look at a building the way I look at it, I look at it different because nine people, you know, that were my friends and most of those guys were on hand lines that I was trying to pump that day and I couldn't pump it successfully. And so that bothers me every single day. So, you know, when I hear certain comments by people that have never been on a line of duty death and don't understand the complexity of that, it's disappointing because I look at things a little bit differently, but I also try to look at the big picture. And I, and I really think this has changed me to the point to where I try to analyze things for the betterment of the people on the scene and for the betterment of the people in the fire service. And again, it's not just about a structure fire. It's about holistically, what are we doing in the fire service to prevent cardiacs, suicides, rollovers, line of duty deaths and structure fires, things of that nature. And I'm all about uh, being aggressive. I come from a very aggressive fire department, and uh, but I'm about being aggressive with some thinking involved as well. And, you know, we have a lot of good guys out there that are doing that today. You mentioned that people who don't know anything about line of duty deaths have made comments. What sort of comments are you referring to? What have they said? We've been to classes to where we've been told that, you know, things that get analyzed a little bit more than they should get analyzed because we're looking at things a little bit differently. And it's not so much on the negative side. It's just people have different perspectives. And I try to bring the perspective of I want to listen to that what that person has to say, and I also want to uh, them to listen to what, you know, our side of it is. And for us in, in, in Charleston, I know a lot of guys, we do look at things different and that's because of what we've experienced. And we really want to get that message out to other people because we want them to understand it before something like this happens to them. You were strongly affected by this and it caused PTSD. How have you dealt with that over this decade and a couple of years well it hit me pretty hard at first as it did a lot of people that i worked with we were all struggling in different aspects some guys were having family troubles some guys were having drinking problems so it's you know it's it's different for everyone how they respond to it for me personally i didn't realize why i felt a specific way i thought that's just how i was supposed to feel after something like this i had no 
education on mental health. I really had no mental health help after the incident either until Chief Tom Carr came in and brought our peer support team. But for me, it took a few years for me to understand really the mistakes that I made personally and, and we made collectively and, and to learn from them because at first I was resisting a lot of the new changes. I was resisting a lot of the new information from NIST and NIOSH and all the studies and the science behind the fire because it scared me. New knowledge scares people and I was one of those guys that it scared me. And so once I really started to dig into the information, I was more or less embarrassed because I was I considered myself a professional and I didn't understand the science behind fire. I understood extinguishing a fire, being aggressive, but I didn't understand what it actually meant to learn the science behind why we do what we do. And that really went a long way with me. And for a lot of the guys uh, that I work with, too, because they really want to understand uh, what is out there. So it took a few years. I started to uh, drink a lot, took a lot of prescription drugs because it just made me not think about the event I turned to a sport called mixed martial arts fighting just because of my anger to try to calm my anger down some. And that didn't really help. I, I turned to tattooing as well. I started to get a lot of tattoos and change my appearance. And so it was very interesting once I started to do this because I really changed my demeanor as well. I wasn't the same person. People at work were noticing a change. My family obviously was. And then I realized I did need some help. So I went to counseling, and when I went to counseling, I did a procedure called eye movement desensitization reprocessing therapy, which many people have taken before or utilized. Once I started to do this, it really opened my eyes, but simultaneously, I was going back to school, and I was learning about leadership, and I was learning about the science behind fire, and really, the education piece was huge for me because I was thinking out of my own comfort zone. It's easy to, to think on the things that you know. But it's hard to go learn from other people. That's what I do today as well. I try to go learn from everybody because there's so many things out there I don't know. But there's also so many things out there that help me learn, which helps me move through post-traumatic stress. Because I realize every day I'm trying to learn from other people. And I'm trying to get that education. And it's important to me uh, for my therapy as well. And that's why I like to write. Uh, that's why I speak a lot uh, when I travel. Uh, because it's therapy for me as well to be able to tell people, hey, this is what happened to us and to me personally. We don't want this to happen to you. And please take heed to our our recommendations and try to do things a little bit different. It sounds as though what you're saying is you knew how to be a firefighter, but you were missing a lot of why things work the way they work. Definitely. I, I was good at doing what I was told because that's how I was trained. I went to a military college, the Citadel. So that's how I was trained and I was used to that, which didn't bother me because that's how I grew up. But once I started to really learn why we do what we do, it makes so much more sense. And it's not just in the fire service, it's in corporations as well. When individuals understand why they do what they do, you have better buy-in, you have better uh, employee satisfaction, you have guys that really want to do that job because they understand it and they have that buy-in to doing why they do what they do. So you've told this story hundreds of times by now. What changes for you every time you tell it? Really, for me, it's I, nothing changes for me internally. I still feel the same way I will always feel. I'm very passionate about it. When I tell the story, I try to tell it just like it's my first time telling it because there's people in that crowd that have never seen or heard of the story before. And it's important that I bring that enthusiasm and really the excitement to tell it because I want to tell you, hopefully, the things that you can try to fix today so something like this doesn't happen. And that means a lot to me personally. And I really want 
people to take, you know, heed to the recommendations or the lessons learned because these guys, these guys died. So you learn from them. They died. So you don't go through this. And I'm hoping that people understand that in the long run. All right, Dr. David Griffin, thanks for being on Code 3 today and giving us your first-hand account. Thanks so much. And we put some more information about the Charleston Nine and David's company on a mission, as well as his books, on our website at Code3Podcast.com slash Charleston. Check it out. Here's your trivia question. Where are the battery packs in hybrid vehicles usually located? The answer, after this. If you've been thinking about making a monthly pledge to support Code 3, we have an even better reason for you to do it now. We've started a new subscriber-only benefit. It's called the Code 3 Bull Session. It's more material from some of our interviews. Interesting stuff that didn't make it into the regular show. But only patrons get to hear it. So head over to Code3Podcast.com slash support and make a pledge of $10 a month or more, and you'll get immediate access to the Bull Session. Don't miss it. Here's the trivia answer. The battery packs in hybrid vehicles are usually found in the rear of the vehicle or under the back seat. All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next time with more, and I hope you'll be here then. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, I'll see you later. Code 3 is a production of Enchanted Sky Media. To get in contact with us, visit Code3Podcast.com. And if you haven't subscribed yet, you should. Don't miss an episode. Find us at the Apple iTunes Store, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. 